Please turn with me in your Bibles to the 13th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. We began our study of this very familiar chapter last week. So this week we'll be looking at the rest of the chapter beginning in verse 4 and we'll read through verse 13. 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 13. Please give your attention to God's holy word. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. About 75 years ago, a woman named Catherine Briggs and her daughter, Isabel Myers, created something that would later become a pop culture phenomenon called the Myers-Briggs Personality Test. By, as it developed in the form that we know it today, by answering a number of questions about how you think and act in different circumstances and settings, you can find out which of 16 different personality types that they came up with that actually fits you. Are you an ISTJ or an INFP or an ESTP or an ENTJ? Probably about half the people you know if you ask them that question. What kind of Myers-Briggs personality do you have? Probably half the people you know could give you an answer with, one, with, with those four letters or one version of those four letters. As I have used it, had lots of interesting conversations about it, interacted with people about the Myers-Briggs test, I found it to be both very harmful and very helpful to us as an interesting tool. I think in terms of being harmful to us, we tend to use our Myers-Briggs personality type as an excuse for not doing things that we don't want to do or things that we find difficult to do. For instance, I really ought to do my homework, but I'm an ESFP and so it's not really my thing. Or, I know I should really share the gospel with my coworker, but I'm an ISTJ, so I'm going to pray that the Lord will send an ESFP to my coworker to share the gospel with him. We can use it as an excuse. But on the other hand, I do think that God intentionally and creatively hardwires different personalities into different people. 
that there is a sense, it certainly can change, but there's a sense in which we are born with certain personality tendencies. And so I think tests like this can sometimes be very constructive in helping us to kind of think about who we are, the way that God has designed us, as well as the way that circumstances have changed us. But keep this in mind. If you're a Christian, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, it's because you've been changed. You have been given a new nature. In the words of Paul, you are a new creation in Christ. And that new nature that the Holy Spirit has instilled within you dramatically affects your personality. And that's something that we need to seriously think about. In this section of 1 Corinthians, we're talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. Primarily, as you look at chapters 12, 13, and 14, his Paul, the Apostle Paul's primary topic is about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And over the last couple of weeks, we've seen that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are special abilities and aptitudes that the Holy Spirit gives to believers, and only to believers, but he gives a variety of different kinds of gifts of the Holy Spirit to different believers, and they are intended to be tools that are used these abilities that the Holy Spirit gives are meant to be tools that you use to fulfill your calling as a Christian living in this fallen world. That's what the gifts of the Holy Spirit are. Well, last week we saw how Paul here in chapter 13 kind of pauses in everything that he has to say about the gifts of the Holy Spirit to talk about one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And there is a very important difference, as we have seen, between the fruit of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Everybody's given a gift or gifts of the Holy Spirit, but we're all given different gifts. But when it comes to the fruit of the Holy Spirit, these are things that grow out of this new nature that the Holy Spirit has given to every believer. Every, Holy, every believer has the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit gives to every believer not only gifts, but fruit that grow out. And we all have, in seed form at least, some form of these fruits of the Holy Spirit. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit, is to grow these fruits within our lives. And so we saw last week that the fruit of the Spirit that Paul wants to emphasize and focus on is what he would, he would in his list in Galatians chapter 5, is actually the first fruit of the Spirit that he lists. And therefore, as we will see here, the most important fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of love. He said, as we saw last week in the first three verses of chapter 13, he said, you can have all kinds of gifts of the Holy Spirit. You can have the really spectacular, miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit that were operating in the first century. You can have some of those. But if you don't have the fruit of this love, then the gifts mean nothing. What you do with the gifts mean nothing. Those gifts say nothing about you. You are nothing without love being at the root and the source of the use of the spiritual gifts. And that brings us up to where we were at the end of last week's passage, the end of verse 3. We talked about last week how this love that we're talking about is not the kind of love that the world talks about. It's of a, a radically different nature. Matter of fact, we saw last week that the world doesn't know this love, cannot express this love, cannot exercise this love, because it's a love that is only given by the Spirit to those who are born again by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
1 John chapter 4, verse 7, we read this verse last week. It says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In other words, if you are capable of having this love towards others and towards God, it's because you know God. And if you don't know God, if you're not born of God, if you're not born again, then you do not know this love. Remember, we said last week that this love in the original Greek of the New Testament it's a word that wasn't being used very much in the Greek culture, and so the writers of the New Testament, particularly Paul, seizes upon the word agape and uses the word agape to talk about this supernatural, spirit-given love that is unique to believers. And so we're talk when we talk about love, I'm going to use the word agape just to make sure you understand it's not the kind of love that the world talks about. It's not the kind of love that the world even knows. It's this spirit-given love, agape love. Remember what Jesus said about this kind of love? In, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 46 to 48, listen to what Jesus says. He says, speaking to his disciples, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? If you only love those who will love you back, then what reward do you have? And it, you hear the language of Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. What gain is it to you if you only love those who love you back? You're nothing if you only love those who will love you back, because that's the kind of love the world knows. Yeah, the, the world will do nice things for each other. People that don't know Christ, they'll do nice things for each other, but it's not motivated by agape love, the kind of love that Paul's talking about. So Jesus goes on to say, do not even the tax collectors do the same? Don't tax collectors love people that pay their taxes and give them all kinds of benefit? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, thus, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Hear what he's saying. Those who are his disciples, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, then the way that you love God and love others has to be dramatically different than the way the world loves each other. There is something unique about this agape love that they're talking about. And so when we talk about our personalities, our personalities differ from one another. We do have different traits but we all who love Christ and know Christ have this agape love and this love uses our personalities and changes our personalities and causes us to act against our personalities sometimes that's the way this love is and we need to understand this love we, we work so hard to try to understand our personalities, but we don't spend nearly enough time trying to understand this new loving nature that the Spirit has given to all of us who love Christ. We need to dig deep into it. We need to explore, like Paul says, like Paul prays for us, we need to explore the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of this love of Christ, which surpasses all understanding. Jesus said to us, as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. His love towards us is the standard that we strive for. Not dependent on any worthiness, anything desirable in the one that is being loved. That's the kind of love that Christ has. And it's to flow out of us as a fruit of the Spirit. It's central to our identity as Christians. So how is this love different from the love of the world? And Paul helps us with this in this next section, beginning in verse 4. He talks about some of the characteristics of this agape love, this spirit-given love. And what strikes me, the first time I read through this list this week, what really struck me is that Paul is emphasizing aspects of 
agape love that believers have in terms of how it responds to the sins and flaws of others. Every description he gives seems to be related to the fact that you're dealing with other sinners and the effects of their sins in this fallen world every day. So in light of, almost I would put that, that, that uh, preamble to it, in light of the fact that we are sinners and everyone around us are sinners and this is a fallen world full of sin, this is what love looks like. And this is where we begin to get into the descriptions, some of the characteristics of agape. He gives 15 different terms to describe agape. Half of them are positive, what agape is, and half of them are negative, what agape isn't. And you'll see here lots of parallels to the other fruit of the Spirit. Remember how we said that love is the primary and most important of the fruit of the Spirit that every believer has? You're going to see it in the list of characteristics because some of the other fruit will come out in terms of, of, of the description of love. For instance, the very first one. Paul says love is patient. Patience is one of the fruit of the Spirit. But patience flows out of this love that the Spirit has given to us. And this isn't patience, I mean, patience in terms of waiting for something good to happen. I think in this context, the patience that Paul's talking about is being patient with the sins and flaws of other people. Forbearance is a biblical word that you might be familiar with. Forbearing the sins and flaws of the sinners around you. That doesn't mean you're indifferent to the sins of others around you, but it means that because you love others, remember what our definition of love was. Last week we talked about a definition of love that I've developed over studying the New Testament after all these years. My definition of love, and I think it's the biblical understanding of love, this agape love that we're talking about, is, is that you um, find your joy and satisfaction in helping others to prosper in the eyes of God. It's an act of your heart and your will and your mind that you find your joy and your satisfaction. That's your greatest pleasure is to see others prosper, not in their own eyes necessarily or in the eyes of this world, but to prosper in the eyes of God. That's what this agape love is all about. And so when you talk about patience, love is patient. In other words, what that says is you're finding your joy and satisfaction in seeing the prosperity and seeking the prosperity in God's eyes of those around you while enduring their sins and the effects of their sins. It's not easy loving sinners. But that's where your joy and satisfaction is, is seeing them grow and prosper and become what God intends them to be through the grace of God and through the gospel. Secondly, Paul says love is kind. Kind is such a bland word. Somebody says, what's, what's kind mean? You know, and it, you kind of struggle to d define it. It's such a bland word. But it's really, I think, built upon patience. Because love is patient with the sins of others. We, we put up with the sins and flaws of others. Why? So that we can help them prosper. And that's where kindness comes in. It's responding to the sins and flaws of others, not with retribution or avoidance, but with blessing. That's kindness, to bless the others, and particularly to bless others who have sinned against you or in spite of their sinfulness. Thirdly, Paul says, love does not envy. Love does not envy. It's not jealous. And you see how jealousy and envy is kind of the opposite of the kind of love we're describing. Love rejoices and finds satisfaction in seeing others prosper in God's eyes, but jealousy says no, my joy and satisfaction is in having what my neighbor has or having more than what my neighbor has. 
That's what envy and jealousy says, and it's the exact opposite of love. It's the response of Joseph's, Joseph's brothers in the book of Genesis to Joseph. They envied Joseph's position in the family and the possessions that the father had given to him, and so they took everything he had and destroyed his life. And how did he respond? He responded with patience and with kindness. He blessed those brothers who were his enemies, was kind to them instead of envying what they had taken away from him. They, he didn't envy, but he responded with kindness. Fourth description, actually I'm gonna to put two together here. Paul says, the love does not boast, it is not arrogant. Remember that arrogance, pride, was a big issue in the church in Corinth. They were, had spiritual pride. Especially in this section, he's dealing with the pride regarding spiritual gifts, that those who had the miraculous gifts were thought that they were better than the other Christians, and they sought to use those gifts in a way that brought glory and honor to themselves instead of to Christ. That was the issue in the context of the church in Corinth. And Paul is saying, love does not boast. Love is not arrogant. Love is not prideful. Boasting is finding your joy and satisfaction in being seen as prosperous in the eyes of others instead of finding your joy and satisfaction in seeing them prosper in God's eyes. That's what pride is. Agape does not seek to build oneself up, but to build others up. That's the character of this love. Fifth, the, Paul says that love is not rude. It's interesting, in the original language, I, I did a word study on the word rude because I wasn't sure how that applies. And I thought, what, what is rudeness in Paul's mind here? And actually, they'd say a better translation would be, love is not indecent. Love is not inappropriate. And all of a sudden, that opened up some application to me right away. Love doesn't act in a way that is inappropriate. Inappropriate in relation to what? Well, of course, God's law. But I think, in this context, I think what he's saying is it's not inappropriate in the eyes of the people around you. You don't act in a way that is inappropriate in the eyes of the people. In other words, you're sensitive to the standards of the other people around you. How do you talk? What kind of language do you use? I mean, I go to football games, baseball games, and I hear lots of rude language, people talking in ways that violates my standards. That's rudeness. And sometimes I'm actually troubled. I'll notice that Christians sometimes will use rude language so that they can be seen as prosperous in the eyes of the world, so that they can be looked at as cool or edgy or hip. You know, use language that Christians don't usually use. But Paul says, no, love is not rude. Love is not inappropriate. Love says, how should I dress in this setting? What effect is the way that I, the clothes that I wear or don't wear, how does that affect the people around me? Love is not inappropriate. Do I follow the rules of politeness in my culture? Or do I treat them like they're not important? Well, Paul says love is not rude. Love is not inappropriate. These are the kind of questions I think that we as Christians need to continually be asking ourselves if we want to love the other people around us. But, you know, of course, the, the sinful nature that still lurks within us says, you know, who has the right to tell me how to talk? You know, who, who, who has any right to tell me how to dress, how to act in public? Well, look at the next description of love. Paul says, love does not insist on its own way. Love doesn't demand its rights. 
That's one of the things I'm concerned about is that when the world around us these days, at least in the, in the broad public media, when they talk about the church, it's, it's, when they look at the church, all they hear is a bunch of people talking about their rights all the time. We have a right to this. We have a right to that. We're all trying to defend our rights, but that shouldn't be our primary message. Christians should have rights, should have human rights, should have religious rights. I'm not against all that. I'm just saying, if the world thinks we're all about protecting our rights, then it's not getting the right message. It's about loving. It's about affirming the rights of others. It's about serving the rights of others. Love does not insist on its own way. It's that important New Testament concept of submission, of giving the way to another, of serving their needs before your own. When you come to the door, you both come to the door at the same time, you step back and hold the door for the person who goes through. When you come to the stop signs at the same time, even if you're on the right, you let the other person go first, you know? These are things, that's the way a Christian thinks, even about the smallest things in life. Is I get more joy and satisfaction in seeing another person have what they want than me getting what I want. That's agape. Paul goes on to say love is not irritable. Literally what that says is that love is not easily or quickly stirred up to anger. It's not easily provoked, doesn't have a short fuse. It's patient and forbears with others. As James says, it's slow to speak and slow to anger, just like God. Then Paul goes on to say love is not resentful. Literally in the original language that says love takes no inventory of evil. Or if you know the NIV version, love keeps no record of wrongs. See, that's the love of the gospel, the love that says, when you're forgiven, your sins are put away as far as east is from west. I'm not going to keep a record of the wrongs. I'm not going to bear a grudge. I'm not going to be bitter. I'm not going to be resentful. That's the way of our old nature. That's the way of the world and its loves, but it's not the way of agape. Tim Keller says, I saw this quote last week, he said, the essence of forgiveness is absorbing pain instead of giving it. In other words, you're willing to absorb the pain of the offense against you as opposed to retaliating in response to the pain that you've experienced. Paul goes on to say, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. This deals with the attitude of the heart towards the, the sin around you. Of course, agape doesn't rejoice in or celebrate sin that's that's a no-brainer but I think Paul is meaning to go beyond that to say we don't rejoice in seeing sinners become more sinful and I do think that we do fall into that in this world that we as Christians makes us feel better about ourselves when we can point our finger at the world and say look how sinful they are look how terrible that is and we it makes us it's it's a self-centered self-driven kind of response to the world to say I feel like I'm such a better person when I compare myself to all those awful sinners out there in the world Paul says love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing love doesn't rejoice in sin it rejoices in truth there in the sporting world there's another kind of rejoicing at wrongdoing that I'm reminded of in in the in sports we talk about schadenfreude do you know what schadenfreude is a word that's borrowed from German but it it, it's basically means to rejoice in somebody else's misery and it's what you feel, Some, many of you will feel later on today when the New England Patriots lose. It's the joy that you feel in seeing the Patriots lose. 
or the joy we feel all year long, like the other night when Ohio State loses to Penn State. There's a joy that we feel there that there's something a little bit wrong about. We're, we're rejoicing in the misery of our enemies. And that's the way the world is, but that's not the way the church is. And, but, you know, when you think about the way that the church tends to interact with the sinfulness of the world, we sometimes rejoice not only in the sins of the world, of sinners becoming more sinful, but we rejoice in seeing them miserable because of their sins, that somehow that makes us feel better about ourselves, and that's not the love of Christ. The love of Christ says, along with Psalm 119, verse 36, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. That's agape, that we grieve over the sins of others, not rejoice in them. And we grieve over the effects, the addictions, the slavery, the loss, the misery, that the sins, those sins that happen out there in the world that we're observing all the time. And it humbles us. Then finally in that section we get a summary statement. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Paul is giving us a picture of this agape that It's a picture of a Christian who is patient, forbearing, enduring, but optimistic. Always believing, always hoping, because the gospel is true. We can endure our sins and the effects of our sins. We can endure the sins of others and the effects of the sins of others because the gospel is true, because God has promised the fullness of our salvation and God is faithful to fulfill his promises. So we are always optimistic, even in the midst of the greatest suffering. This is agape. This is the love of God. And one thing that's always helpful to me is when you read 1 Corinthians 13, and you read these descriptions of this spirit-given love, to plug, take out the word love and plug in the name of Jesus. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus doesn't envy or boast. Jesus isn't arrogant or rude. Jesus doesn't insist on his own way. Jesus isn't quick to become angry or hold grudges. Jesus grieves over sin and its effects and rejoices in truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. You see, this is perfect love, the love of Christ. He's the standard for this love. And yes, we fall far, far short of that standard. We fail at every point. And yet, the Spirit is instilling and growing this fruit of the Spirit continuously in those who love Christ. And we're forgiven for all those failures. The beautiful thing about the gospel is is that that picture of Jesus, the kind, forbearing, patient, this, this kind of love, that's what God sees when he looks at us because we are given his record of perfection when we trust in the gospel we trust in the message of the gospel believing that Jesus came and died on the cross and bore the wrath of God that all our sins deserved in our place and was raised from the dead that we are not only forgiven for all the ways and many ways in which we don't love every day but we are seen by God with a perfect record of love that Christ has given to us his love is given to us as a record and then if that weren't good enough news that we are given a record of perfect love for the whole course of our lives, the love of Christ, 
He actually gives us his Holy Spirit and begins to transform our hearts and our lives, our minds, so that we begin to exercise that love. As I have loved you, love one another, he says. So here in the middle of chapter 13, we have the description of the beautiful character of love, but then he talks about the longevity of it, the permanence of agape. Look at verse 8. Love never ends. Unlike the gifts of the Holy Spirit, agape is eternal. He keeps emphasizing the gifts are temporary. They're tools to be used in this age until this age is over. But love is eternal. Why is it eternal? Because God is love. Because this is the character of Christ. It's an attribute of God. Therefore, it will endure for eternity. And that's why it should be most important to you. You will have this gift for eternity. Notice there that Paul lists the three familiar gifts of the Spirit that were the controversial gifts in Corinth. They were arguing over the gift of tongues and the gift of knowledge and the gift of prophecy. And Paul will get back into that argument and debate that they're having and the sin issues they had over it. He'll get back into that next chapter. But he wants to make the point here again that these things are temporary. You're all caught up. You're measuring, you're, you're measuring each other by the gifts you have and how they're being used. You should be measuring each other by the love that you have that's been given by the Holy Spirit. These things are going to pass away, he said. They're going to cease. The word in the original language means rendered obsolete. In other words, they have value for a while, but one day they're going to become obsolete. The gift of tongues became obsolete once... The scriptures were complete, and we didn't need any more revelation from God. The gift of knowledge won't be needed in the eternity in the future. The gift of prophecy won't be needed. The first century gift of prophecy ended, and the ongoing prophecy of preaching and proclaiming and sharing the word of God and teaching the word of God, that will end because it's only for this age. These things will be rendered obsolete by some great event. I was going through one of my closets a couple weeks ago and I came across a shoebox and I didn't know what was in it and opened it up. You never know what you're going to find when you open up a shoebox that's in your closet. And in it was a whole bunch of flip phones. <laughs> flip phones that my family had used, you know, and once everybody got smartphones, they were all relegated to the shoebox, I guess. And I don't know why I kept them. They're not even useful as doorstops at this point because, I mean, they work fine though. If I were to charge them up, they would work fine. But I don't have any use for them because I have something better. And that's what Paul's saying about the spiritual gifts. They're good. They're great. They're wonderful gifts of the Lord, but they're temporary. And one day they're going to be rendered obsolete. And what's that day going to be? He says, when the perfect comes. What's that? What's he talking about? The perfect. A lot of debate about that among interpreters of Scripture, but I think the clue is found at the end of verse 12, where he says, now I know in part, then... When the perfect comes, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. It's going to be that day when we see love personified face to face. When we see Jesus. John talks about that day in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. When he appears, we will love like he loves because we will see him as he is. 
And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In light of that, we study, we work hard to understand this love and to practice it and to incorporate it into our lives, our thinking, our attitudes, our actions, because we have this hope that he's going to come again and we'll be able to love like he loves one day. Paul uses two illustrations to compare where we are now to where we will be on that day when he returns. And the first comparison he uses is a comparison between a, a small child and a fully matured adult. He, says, he basically is saying, you know what, on that day when we, be, when we know as fully as we're already known by Christ, we're going to look back on today and we're going to say, wow, our understanding of God, of salvation, of the world, the universe, it was like a toddler's understanding of his world. That's what it's going to be like when the perfect comes. And then he uses another illustration, a mirror image and a face-to-face encounter. Back in the first century, their mirrors weren't quite as good as ours. They used polished metal, and so you got just kind of a vague, dim reflection. Wouldn't be like today looking in a glass mirror, but still, what he, his point is, would you rather have the reflection or would you rather have Christ? Would you rather see a dim reflection of Christ like we see now through our limited faith and through the limit, limitations of scripture, or would you rather see him face to face? You hear what he's saying to the Corinthians. He said, you're all quibbling and fighting and divided over the use of spiritual gifts, and you're missing out on the important thing, which is loving one another, and you're focused on childish things, and you'd rather have the shadow than the reality. You'd rather have the photo than a face-to-face encounter with Christ. Grow up. And pursue love is what he's saying. And so he talks then at the last about the preeminence of love over everything else that the Spirit gives us. Look at verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. Faith, hope, and love abide. So he's saying you've got the most important things that the Spirit gives us is faith, hope, and love. And all three of those, he's saying, are greater than all these spiritual gifts that you guys are fighting over. All three of them are, they abide and they have importance to this very day. They're far more important than the spiritual gifts that you're fighting about. But of those three, love is the greatest. Why? Well, when Christ returns and we see him face to face and we know fully as we are fully known, then faith will become sight. We don't need faith any longer. When Christ returns, all the promises that God has given us will be completely fulfilled. And as Paul says in Romans 8, who hopes for what they already see? Once Christ comes, love is going to be the thing that remains. And isn't that a beautiful description of what eternity is? Loving Christ perfectly and loving each other perfectly. That's paradise. We need to study this. We like to study our personalities. We like to study our spiritual gifts and abilities. What Paul is saying is, don't miss the far more important Thing that you need to study, which is the agape love that the Spirit has given to true believers. My wife has been making plans to plant blueberry bushes in our backyard this summer, and as she has been sharing with me what she's been learning and all of her internet research, it, you know, I'm like, man, I do not appreciate eating blueberries nearly enough. It goes, a, there's a lot of work and knowledge that goes into growing and maintaining blueberry bushes. People that, that provide blueberries or have blueberries, you know, they have to work really hard at it. 
And you think, well, why did God do that? I mean, God could have just had blueberries show up on the step in the morning to put it on your cereal. Why does he put it? Well, it's part, I mean, we worked in the Garden of Eden before sin. I mean, laboring to produce the fruit is part of the joy of enjoying the fruit. It's the same way with love. It's the most important fruit of the Spirit. But it takes work. It's not easy. Matter of fact, it's contrary to so many of these sinful desires that lurk within us. It takes work, it takes study, it takes research, it takes digging into the word, it takes hard application. It means stretching beyond what you're comfortable with. It's doing all kinds of things against this old nature. But we who are born again find our joy and satisfaction in seeing others prosper in the eyes of God. That's what our life is about. Love is most important. Is it the focus of your energy and effort in your discipleship? I'm going to close by reading a very familiar passage, Philippians chapter 2. You know this passage probably almost as well as 1 Corinthians 13, but I'm going to read it. I want, you to, I want you to listen to it carefully in light of what we have learned studying these last couple of weeks in 1 Corinthians 13. See the parallels between what Paul's saying here. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from agape, love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see what Paul's saying? The way to glory, the way to greatness, the way to, to gain, the way to be someone, to be something in the kingdom of God is to go the path of Christ and to love like Christ loves. That's greatness in the eyes of God. That's prosperity in the eyes of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the love of Christ. Thank you for making us new creatures in Christ that can receive and understand and practice that love. Lord, it's hard to love ourselves and love sinners as you have loved us. This is a kind of love that we are still so weak in. Lord, strengthen us by your spirit. Help us to focus upon what's really important among the things that the spirit has given to us and done in us. And may we more and more conform to the image of Christ and love as he has first loved us. We pray in Christ's name, amen.